Okay, well, hello everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted um, to have as our guests today, we have two guests, Mary Davenport and George Delgado. I will make the introductions uh, very brief. We will, I will have on the show notes links so uh, you can find out more about our guests. But Mary Davenport um, and George are both um, uh, physicians in California. Mary practices um, OBGYN in the San Francisco Bay Area. George practices family medicine in the San Diego area. We're going to talk about a, a really a fabulous uh, project and uh, that is ongoing, um, that uh, they both have been instrumental in uh, getting off the ground and, and creating and designing. Uh, but just because people will be accusing us of uh, bias, we'll put the bias just uh, out there for front, they'll be justified. Both George and Mary Davenport are committed pro-life physicians. So you, both of you have dedicated your, you know, a good portion of your professional life, of the of your professional lives, to the pro-life cause, and we were going to talk today about a uh, treatment to reverse uh, medical abortions that you've designed and implemented, and um, and we'll try to play the devil's advocate and try to push back on some of the data that you offer and see um, see if there are any any holes or if you're trying to pull a fast one uh, in front of us and so forth. But uh, uh, George and Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Mary, why don't you, we start with the background. Uh, give us the background on medical abortions and uh, the, the, the pharmacology and, and, um, and how, is it, how it was introduced. and, and uh, that's Well, it had always been um, an aim of reproductive scientists and abortion activists to have a simple, easy way to do abortion to replace surgical abortion. Surgical abortions typically require physicians, an operating room, sterile procedure, that kind of thing. And so there was kind of this dream of, of having just a simple pill or something that would end a pregnancy. Um, so it was kind of a random thing that happened in the early 1990s, but there was um, a computer-generated molecule at Roussel Uclaf, which is a pharmaceutical company um, in France. And um, it, is a, it was a steroid, and it was originally developed as uh, an alternative to a glucocorticoid, something like prednisone. But then they found that it had activity to antagonize progesterone. So this was extremely important. People got all excited about this because progesterone, you know, progest means progestation. It's the hormone that sustains the pregnancy. It's the hormone um, that prepares the uterus for implantation of the embryo and it rises to very high levels during pregnancy. So from the thinking of the people who wanted to do abortions, a molecule that would antagonize progesterone, you know, would be really de desirable. So there was incredible fanfare when this molecule was developed and it was on the covers of all kinds of magazines and reproductive science and that kind of thing in the early 1990s. And then um, there was experimentation in earnest in Europe to use it. And so they tried all, first they tried it on rats. And rats are actually a pretty good model for humans for interrupting pregnancy. And um, they actually found, um, there, there are a lot of analogies from rats to humans, but anyway, early on in Europe, they, um, in, in 
many different centers actually in the Netherlands and Germany and France. Um, they had big studies, especially the pharmaceutical company had big studies of hundreds of women. And it was originally intended to be um, like uh, something that was not quite like a morning after pill, but very early pregnancy, five, six weeks. And then they started extending it. Uh, now, this is weeks from the last menstrual period. In pregnancy, we characterize the number of weeks of pregnancy from a typical last uh, menstrual period of a 28-day or one-month cycle. So um, it was meant to be used in very early gestation, as soon as a woman found out she was pregnant. And so they developed protocols the earlier ones, they were experimenting with many different doses, and they started out with like teeny doses uh, for five days in a row, seven days in a row. Um, and then they finally, for clinical convenience, settled on just like a one-shot deal where they would give a bigger dose all at once. So they arrived at 600 milligrams. And... Um, that was sort of all the definitive, that was the main definitive study in the early 1990s. And uh, they found that uh, the results depended on the gestation. So if it were very early at five, six, seven weeks, they would have a higher rate of success than um, eight or nine weeks. Okay. And Mary, and, that's just, yeah. um, that's the, the drug that was at that time known as RU486. Yes, right. It was... Okay. Uh, Yes, the, the chemical name now is mifepristone, but it was named RU486 after the experimental molecule from RU Roussel Uclef Pharmaceutical Company. And so what they found was for the early gestations, they um, had about 10% surviving embryos. Uh, and then for later, they had about 20% 20% surviving embryos uh, for over seven weeks. And then, but beside the issue that it wasn't, it was mostly embryocidal, meaning that it killed the embryo and it su succeeded in doing an abortion, but it wasn't 100%. It was like 80 90% for right. the early we, gestations. We have to recalibrate the thinking because here when we talk about survival, from their perspective, that's a negative, right? That's a negative. It's a negative. <laughs> right. okay, so. But, you know, leading on to what we were doing later, that's a positive. Okay. okay. But at any rate, the other thing they found was... Is that taking two... Sorry, Mary. Is that taking two in succession? Meaning taking... Well, we're, we're just talking about the RU486, the mifepristone. Just taking it but, one time. Yes, yes, in, in, in one shot, right. So if you took, if you took the area 46 once, then right. the natural then history it, was that 80, 90%. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So um, um, they also, in addition to it not being 100% killing the embryo, um, there were some women who had hemorrhages. It didn't completely empty the uterus. And, and of course, if you want, to fulfill this fantasy of a good abortion pill. You know, you want the woman to take the pill and to have a complete abortion and not an incomplete abortion, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, they, they had a fairly uh, significant number of incomplete abortions. So in order to solve that dilemma, um, they needed a second pill. Um, and so the logical second pill to use was 
a prostaglandin. So prostaglandins are hormones or chemicals that soften the cervix and then they cause uterine contractions. So if you have the RU486 RU that's embryocidal and it works actually on the lining of the uterus. There are a lot of progesterone receptors there and it affects those receptors and it detaches actually the pregnancy tissue from um, the uterus and causes hemorrhage. That's the way it works. It doesn't directly attract, uh, attack the embryo. It's sort of more the lining of the uterus. Um, so you take the RU486, and then the prostaglandin works best if it's used uh, one to two days later. Um, and so they developed a regimen. They kind of got it down in Europe in these experimental studies in France, UK, some of them Scotland, um, where they would get up to 90-95% over the course of a couple days, women would have a successful complete abortion. Now, what's interesting about the clinical circumstances where they did these abortions was they were very well supervised. Um, they, in, in the UK, um, as an alternative to the DNC, the reg regular suction abortion, these women were hospitalized. Um, in France, uh, but for the whole duration of their mm -hmm. medical abortion, which took two days. In France, um, they have abortion specialists and abortion clinics. It's not just your general practitioner or OBGYN that does abortions. They had these dedicated abortion centers. So the women would go in there and take the first pill. I, they wouldn't stay overnight, but they'd stay, stay there for several hours. A small number would ab abort that first day, the real early ones, and then the next day they would come back. But anyway, it was very supervised by very trained clinicians. And so finally they, they legalized this. It was successful enough that they legalized it in Europe and also in China, by the way, as an alternative. Um, and there was actually an enormous fight in the United States. And this drug was kept out of the United States by pro-life activists until 2001. And then it was finally um, admitted in the United States with this the same regimen with the two pills in succession. Okay. So Mary, just just to be clear, when they, yeah. they legalized, when RU486 was introduced in Europe, it was introduced as a combination with... Well, with now, the, the, the second pill that's used has other uses, okay? It's mesoprostol. So <clears throat> that has been a long-standing, inexpensive drug used for ulcer patients. Right. So... Um, part of the regimen was this off-label use of, of mesoprostol that was widely available everywhere. So that didn't need to be legalized. Oh, right, but, but I'm, I'm sorry, so I, I misspoke, but I, I meant in terms right. of its clinical its clinical use when it was introduced was as a one-two regimen. First, the uh, RU486, and then... Yeah the the uh, well the right the experiments weren't successful enough they didn't get up to high enough right. in the 90 okay. right. percent you know so okay. they early on they they figured oh it's not going to work with the one drug we need okay. the two drugs okay um so it's interesting but parallel to these developments in europe the thinking in the united states was different because we have activists here um that kind of believed in this um I don't know whether to call it a myth or ideology, but like the abortion pill and do-it-yourself abortion and women should have control and really demedicalizing abortion, okay? Because in Europe, 
they would take the first pill under supervision, they would come back to the clinic, get the second pill under supervision. In the United States, uh, early on, they started protocols taking the second pill at home. Um, in the United States, uh, in, in Europe, and the original protocols, the doctors that administered the abortion pill had to have surgical privileges, they needed to have a hospital within an hour, you know, just kind of a lot of safety features. They needed to have an ultrasound. And a lot of this was really, really omitted um, in the newer protocols. They were called the population research protocols or evidence-based protocols, but they kind of stripped away all of these safety features. Mm -hmm. So there were small studies that, that, uh, that used uh, these easier protocols, shall we say, okay, less supervised protocols. And interestingly enough, during one of them in, in Canada, when one, one of the women died in one of the clinical trials, and she died of clostridial, uh, to uh, cl clostridial toxin, not bacterial septic shock, but toxic shock. She was the first death, and we don't know who, who this was, but um, what happened to her was um, she took the first drug, then took the second drug, had unclear if she had a complete abortion, but she kept bleeding and she went to the emergency room in Canada two or three times. And they didn't kind of pick up what was going on. You know, mm -hmm. they were just regular emergency room doctors and they, I don't think, appreciated she was part of this new protocol. And um, she died of toxic shock. And that shut down RU486 in Canada. And they didn't have medical abortion until about two years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it had a big effect. <laughs> in those days, what, how far out, uh, or maybe still, to, to, what was oh, pro how far out in pregnancy were they using? Approved, uh, it was originally approved for up to 49 days, seven weeks. But early on in these kind of do-it-yourself easy protocols, they extended to nine weeks and then even 10 weeks. And there is a big debate in the abortion community, should it be extended to 10 weeks? Because you, you do get more survivors after that. Mm -hmm. And that's unpleasant um, for everybody. I mean, not for us, okay. But if, you, if you're an abortion doctor, that's an undesirable outcome. So um, at any rate, these protocols were introduced to the United States and Planned Parenthood picked them up. And very, very soon after legalization, bing, 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 we had four deaths of young women in California. And they were very, very similar circumstances where uh, women um, took the pills, got ill, had some bleeding, went to the emergency room. There was one woman in, in Southern California who, she was a teacher, and um, See, there, the, the myth of it, that this is so easy, it's safe, you're going to take the pill, you'll be fine, you can go home. So she thought she was done. And then she went to Las Vegas gambling with her friends. Mm -hmm. And then she kind of felt ill that night. And then they tried to get her up the next day, and she didn't wake up and called an ambulance, and she died in the hospital in Las Vegas. And then in the meantime... Three other women died. One of them is famous, um, Holly, uh, I'm forgetting her name, but her father published um, a lot of uh, information about her death and went on a crusade about how medical abortion was unsafe. But at any rate, 
there were these four deaths in California. And, and the and CDC came in, they exhumed the body of this woman that died in, in the Las Vegas hotel and did autopsies on all of them. And they found that the common element was clostridia hmm. and clostridia toxin. And that changed the protocol somewhat because what they had been doing then, um, the early mesoprostyle to start the contractions was given orally. But then they had in the do-it-yourself home protocols use the prostaglandin vaginally. And that was thought to be a contributing factor to why they got the clostridial sepsis in, in, in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in reaction to that, then the more current regimens use, don't use vaginal. Now, now the vaginal is more successful at getting a, you know, you can do later abortions and um, more complete abortions, but more infection. So now what's done instead of swallowing the pill is, is sublingual or buckle, just kind of sucking on the um, mesoprostol in your mouth for the okay. second pill. And that seems to work, but then avoid the problem with the vaginal mesoprostol. Um, and the other thing that has been done kind of early on was in Europe, they use 600 milligrams of mifepristone. And actually, mifepristone is now made in China. There was a big, um, they stopped making it at Roussel-Uclough in, in France. There were tons of protests all over the world about that. They were going to try to make it in the USA. There were a lot of protests about that, so they made it in China. So most of the so, uh, mifepristone or RU486 is made in China now. Um, is it generic by now? Um, I, I had read that there had been, there may be some other sources now. I mean, this is like 25 years after the fact, okay. But for a long time, the only source was China. And it was a little bit expensive to get 600 milligrams. It actually took three 200 milligram pills. And it was expensive. It was expensive enough that in the abortion clinics, when a woman is going to take um, the mifepristone, it's under direct observation. Um, and so, you know, the clinician will look at her until she takes it. And actually, some of our patients that have felt pressured and wanted to get out of it felt not exa- well, kind of forced. You know, that they were coerced into taking it because the doctor would just stand right there and you know, make her finish all the pills when she was still kind of undecided about it or ambivalent. Um, But anyway, um, so the point about China is the drug was expensive and they changed the dose from three 200 milligram pills. And so the current regimen that we use in the United States is one 200 um, milligram mifepristone dose and then also the dose of mesoprostol has, has been raised somewhat because that succeeds more in getting complete abortions. So it's been sort of standard um, for quite a while. Did the, the, the uh, uh, success or quote-unquote success rate with the 200 milligram dose? Uh, well, the, uh, thing, main, the, the thing that yeah. made up for it is, is the mesoprostol. Okay. 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 Um, there's, there's certainly... If you don't use the mesoprostol, there's definitely more uh, surviving embryos with with the 200. But if you use the mesoprostol, 
pretty quick, um, then it, it, it kind of doesn't matter because you'll get the over 90, 95% rate for all mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. So uh, for a long time, um, everything was off-label. You know, most people in the U.S. were using smaller dose, even though what was approved was 600. And finally, in something like 2017, the FDA, uh, FDA approved the 200 mifepristone. And um, the now it's up to 800 of mesoprostol um, as a, a standard okay. com combination regimen. Okay. Um, have, have there been any, any more uh, deaths besides those four? There have been a few. Like in the world, there's, you know, been a few dozen. What, some of them from hemorrhage, some from clostridia, sepsis, some from, if you don't do the ultrasound, a woman can have an ectopic pregnancy. Right. You know, a pregnancy in the tube and then have, like the symptoms people have um, of an abortion, they can appear to bleed a lot and think they've had a successful abortion. And in, in the meantime, an ectopic pregnancy can be in their tube and kind of a ticking time bomb. And, and then, you know, something happens. So um, I, the, the clinics have gotten somewhat better, but uh, it, it, there, you know, there are aspects of it where, it's, it's unsupervised. There have been a number of women in a number of women's magazines who have written about the experience of medical abortion. It's not terribly pleasant. I mean, it can go on for a long time. The bleeding can go on for a long time. There can be a lot of cramping. That high mesoprostol dose causes nausea and vomiting a lot. So um, it, it's, not that e it, you know, it's not that easy for everyone. Um, nonetheless, it's becoming more and more a predominant method of abortion. Okay. You know, in Europe, in Scandinavia, 90% of, of, uh, of the abortions are medical abortions by the pill rather than surgical. In the U.S., um, there's been more and more, I think it's something like 30 or 40% right now. It's interesting, but some countries um, have never thought it was safe and haven't gone over to medical abortion. For example, I believe in the Netherlands, they don't do it. They don't do medical abortion. They didn't in Canada until two years ago. In Japan, some of it has to do with um, cartels of abortion doctors that are used to you know, their own methods. And then from the point of view of an abortion physician, they'd rather have it over and done with than having a woman out there with the potential to hemorrhage or have an infection or something like that. But, but it's getting more and more common and then introduced to developing countries. Um, one of the issues has been um, getting mifepristone legalized. It's legalized in most of Europe, most of Asia, India, um, not so much in, in African countries or in South America, but the thing is, mesoprostol is legal everywhere. So um, there have been regimens, and by big population control, uh, reproductive um, uh, NGOs that have developed protocols for mesoprostol all by itself, and that can work pretty well. And the, the most predominant method now of illegal abortion in the world is mesoprostol all by itself because right. it's easily obtainable and you can just get it in markets in a lot of places. And this is what people will use now. Okay. Is yeah. there any, before we, we close, uh, uh, is, mm -hmm. is there any 
other potential uh, medical use of mifepristone besides abortion? Uh, rarely. There's um, a couple, oh darn. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a brand name called Corlin, which is the, it's, it's a 600 milligram tablet that's approved for Cushing syndrome. So it's FDA. That's right. Right. Okay. But that's about it. I don't think it's used very much. Okay. You know, but. Okay. Thank you. Um, anything else, Mary, about the background? No, that's sort okay. of where, Great. you know, where we're at and how we got here. Okay. okay. Uh, widely used. More in right. Europe than here. Right. Uh, George, tell us your story or, or how, uh, how you got into it. Well, it was uh, back in 2009 when I was working in my office and I got a phone call from a sidewalk counselor by the name of Terry Palmquist, who was in Bakersfield, California. And she had a woman on the phone, on her cell phone from El Paso, Texas, who had taken Mifepristone and changed her mind and wanted a second chance at choice. And so Terry was asking me, is there anything I can do to help her? So I paused and I said, well, you know, I've never heard of anyone trying to stop a medical abortion, but let me give it some thought. And I knew how mifepristone works because I'd studied it um, like Mary had from the time it was going through all the trials early on in Europe. It had made such a splash here in the U.S. that uh, I was very interested and I knew exactly how it worked. It was a progesterone receptor antagonist. And I also had a lot of experience using progesterone in women in early pregnancy who had low progesterone levels and were threatening to miscarriage, I had uh, given progesterone in those cases and it was able to save pregnancies. So I thought in my mind, well, maybe putting these two together, maybe giving supplemental progesterone will outcompete the mifepristone at the receptor level and maybe we can bite off the mifepristone until it washes out of the body since it's only one dose. And I said, well, Terry, I think I have an idea. So I found a doctor in El Paso, Texas, Dr. Jonathan Bellacura, who had progesterone in the office, was familiar with using progesterone. I called John and I said, John Allen, I have this idea. Let me tell you what this uh, uh, protocol that I just came up with and told her how I thought we ought to dose it. And she agreed and she treated the patient and the baby survived. So at that point, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I didn't think a lot more of it, however. And, um, and then I started getting some calls from people who started hearing about this around the country, asking me for advice. I had a patient in my own area, came to my own office, whom I treated successfully. And then there was a patient up in Mary's area, and I called her and asked her to treat a patient. And Mary and I started talking, and uh, Mary said, you know, why don't you uh, write up a, a case series for a journal article? And I said, well, you know, I've been thinking about that, and this is the, the kind of uh, kick in the pants I need to do it. So Mary and I wrote an article in Annals of Pharmacotherapy. And we got that published back in 2012. Okay. In researching that article, we discovered that uh, Dr. Matthew Harrison actually had a case two years before mine. So he was the first recorded um, reversal of mifepristone back in North Carolina. And Tell us a little, little more, George, a little more specifically, uh, yeah. how much pro progesterone for how long, um, that sort of thing or at the beginning. Sure what, what was the early experience? The, yeah, the, the first uh, patient, the first protocol was... Uh, to give a 200 milligram injected IM progesterone on three successive days. And then uh, every other day for approximately a week and a half, and then twice a week until the end of the first trimester is what, uh, and it was basically a modification of uh, Dr. Thomas Hilger's uh, injected progesterone protocols, but giving it more intensively early on uh, because um, 
we knew we needed to fight the mifepristone and, and outcompete it early on. Okay, so the, the original protocol was for threatened miscarriages, and then you, mo well, you modified that's, it. That's, that's, the Dr. Silver's protocol for threatened miscarriages is to give it twice a week. Okay. Um, and so I modified that and actually wanted to give it every day for three days in a row, and then twice a week for, uh, for an additional week and a okay. half approximately. Okay. And then twice, twice a week thereafter. Okay. So we published the article and we started getting much more attention. And I realized that we had a couple of problems. Number one, a lot of women weren't finding out about this until it was too late. And number two, every time a woman would call us, we had to scramble around to find a, a doctor who could treat her. So in 2012, then I started a network that I called Abortion Pill Reversal, which is a network of physicians that continues to grow. It's now called Abortion Pill Rescue, and it's run by Heartbeat International. There are now uh, over 600 doctors uh, in that uh, network, as well as um, probably 150 clinics and pregnancy help centers that are in that network. But back then, we just started with a handful. I also knew that uh, we needed to get women this information more quickly and get connected with them more quickly. So we started a, a, a website, abortionpillreversal.com, as well as a 24-7 hotline. Mm -hmm. And so that has grown and has continued. And now uh, the network is called Abortion Pill Rescue, like I mentioned, and Heartbeat International is handling all that. But they wanted the research to stay with me. So in order to conduct and promote and fund research, I started the Steno Institute. Mary and Dr. Harrison are both on the board of directors. It's a nonprofit research institute that now is uh, promoting uh, abortion pill reversal awareness as well as uh, promoting research. And the, um, our last article, which was published in uh, 2018, was a large uh, case review of over uh, 250 successful reversals. And so that was really a landmark study that uh, I authored and uh, Mary was a co-author, as well as uh, several other co-authors. And in it, um, we demonstrated that with our best protocols, our reversal rates were 64 and 68%. Now, we used as a control a number that uh, Mary devised uh, with her very extensive literature research that she published in 2017, where she looked at all the past mifepristone-only studies before they added misoprostol to the mix. And there, uh, she determined that um, the best uh, survival rate was about 25% if nothing else is done. So we used that figure 25% as a sur embryo survival rate if a woman takes mifepristone and does nothing else. And so that was our comparative for the article. Okay. And our 64 and 68% um, reversal rates, as well as on our, our lower reversal rates on, on other protocols, were all statistically significantly better than that 25% uh, success so, so, George, before we, we get a little more into the details of, of the data, when you started the, this program, then you, you, you put together a website, and then you... Um, uh, enrolled the, the assistance of uh, uh, doctors around the country and uh, pregnancy centers and so forth. And you, uh, you've, you've collected information. So all, all the women who would call um, and would accept to, to take the progesterone, uh, they would agree to have a phone call to follow up and, um, and see what the outcomes were over time. Yes, that's right. So all the women who were included in the, in the research agreed. Um, they, they always had a consent where they signed to, number one, participate and, and to have the treatment, and number two, to share information 
with our network so that we could study them. And the ones that declined, of course, we did not include them. We didn't okay. get any of them. And roughly how many would decline or how many were you able to follow of, of all the... the no, the we were able to follow uh, over 600 or so, uh, actually over 700 um, that actually agreed to be followed. And then a you know, certain number of them dropped out uh, for various reasons. Some of them chose to actually continue their abortions or had surgical abortions. And some a small percentage were lost to follow up. But the rest of them we were able to, um, to follow and were able to publish data on them. Okay. And so, and, and over time, you've, you've modified a little bit the progesterone uh, treatment from, or you, yeah. you tried different things and, and, and collected data and then published that in, in a journal. A, a series of how many patients? We did. So the, the series of those over 250 successful reversals, the number that first started in the study were about 700. Okay. And so what we discovered there was that uh, how we gave the progesterone and how much we gave really mattered. And the, um, so we saw some signals there in the data. And one that rose to the top was what we call now the high-dose order protocol. And it was... Um, it was developed at uh, the Obria clinics in Southern California. They started using a higher dose protocol. And we found uh, just serendipitously, actually, I had a meeting with them about something else and found out that they, um, they were getting some very good results. And we went back and analyzed the data. We specifically focused on them. And we saw that uh, with a high dose oral protocol, giving 400 milligrams twice a day for three days and then 400 milligrams at night, until the end of the first uh, trimester, that's where we saw the 68% um, successful reversal rate. So we were very, very happy with that. The other adjustment we did as we studied uh, progesterone more, we found that um, the literature supported that when you take progesterone with food, you get almost double the absorption. So then we start emphasizing that women ought to take it with food. So that was another um, adjustment that we made. And we, um, we did, with the uh, injection uh, protocol, we did find that um, we had 64% uh, reversal rate, so very good. But we also started to find, uh, after the study was published, that fewer and fewer for, uh, compounding pharmacies were compounding progesterone in the 100 milligrams per ml formulation. And so that left us, uh, in many instances, with the off-the-shelf formulation, which is 50 milligrams per ml, and since the standard dose we were using is 200 milligrams, that would mean uh, two injections, one in each gluteal area. So that became a little bit cumbersome. So women were starting to shy away from the injection, physicians also because they were having trouble getting the compounded. So more and more uh, physicians were using the high-dose oral protocol. Okay. Um, you published... Um the, the the series um, in a journal that is not you know not a mainstream journal. Did you try to publish it um, in one of the medical journals or or what was the experience there? Well, first of all, you know, we we did publish in a uh, peer reviewed medical journal called Issues in Law and Medicine. So it is peer reviewed, uh, very upstanding journal. But like you said, it's not a very well-known journal. I think we've made it uh, much more well-known now uh, because of uh, all the notoriety we've attracted. So I think that's been a bonus for the journal. But yes, prior to that, I did submit it to other journals that are more well-recognized, um, trying to seek the widest audience. And for whatever reason, they, uh, they declined to publish it. So I was very happy and very grateful that Issues in Law and Medicine published it. And of course, very, very happy and very proud that it's a peer-reviewed medical journal. Right. 
But what, what reasons were you given when the other journals rejected it? Well, some of the journals said that it was not in, in their scope. Uh, you know, I did try some emergency medicine journals because I thought that would be a great place to publicize it and uh, to get some recognition there. They felt it was not in their scope of, um, of, usual, of usual articles. And uh, the other uh, journals, uh, some uh, family medicine journals uh, offered the same kind of uh, response that it was not in their usual scope. So I wasn't sure if that was the real reason or if they were just avoiding a controversial okay. area. Right. Um, have you had any complications? Well, we, you know, when we look at complications in our data, uh, the main thing we looked at were birth defects, because that's always on everybody's mind. And we found that our birth defect rate was 2.5%, uh, which is about equal to the published birth defect rate in the general population, which is about 3%. It's often quoted as 2 to 5%. So we're very happy that uh, no increased risk of birth defects. People also are concerned about um, preterm delivery rates, of course, and something that's affecting the pregnancy at such an early level. Well, interestingly enough, we found that our preterm uh, delivery rate was 2.7% compared to 10% in the general population. So we think, uh, although that wasn't a primary endpoint, it was very nice to see that. We think it, of course, is because uh, progesterone is approved as a way to prevent preterm delivery in women who've had previous preterm deliveries. So it could be that supplementing with the progesterone, they had healthier placentas and went on to have healthier pregnancies. Okay. As far uh, as others, we, we did not see any of the other um, main signals for complications, so we're very happy about that. So the women that actually go on to lose their, um, the embryo, it's not a more difficult abortion or not more hemorrhage or anything like that? or that No, that, we did not that see no that they effect. had substantially more hemorrhage uh, or more complications or infections, anything like that. Okay. Um, what, um, so what was the reaction after the publication of, uh, of your series? So you could say we kind of had a bimodal reaction. So those uh, people who are uh, more pro-life oriented were very excited about this. Uh, we got a lot of encouragement, a lot of uh, congratulatory messages, a lot of excitement of people wanting to implement these protocols uh, in their clinics, in their practices. And we saw that uh, the number of physicians in our uh, um, network grew very significantly and continues to grow. We also saw an increased number of phone calls to the hotline and especially increasing now as time goes on. Okay. On the other side of the spectrum, we saw that people who are pro-abortion were attacking us right out of the gate, almost out of hand, without seriously considering the data and without uh, really giving us a very careful consideration. So they um, were publishing and uh, spreading uh, falsehoods, saying that, first of all, that... Um, well, first of all, they were saying that, well, mifepristone is not that effective. And they were exaggerating the previous data that uh, Mary carefully, um, carefully analyzed in her, in her uh, uh, article. And they were saying that they were lying about the data and saying that, well, 40% or 50% of the time, mifepristone doesn't work anyway. So if you do nothing, 40 to 50% of the time, you'll get. Some of them said 50 to 70%. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're really lying about it because um, if you look at the data, and Mary went through this very carefully, but 25% of the time the embryo will survive, but an incomplete miscarriage is 40 to six, uh, 20 to 40% of the time, actually, in most of the studies, an in incomplete miscarriage or incomplete abortion does not imply embryo survival. It only means that the contents of the uterus were not completely empty. Okay. And so with Mary's article, we really answered that and, and really 
they, they no longer make those false claims, fortunately. The next thing they said was that, well, um, reversal is, uh, is not successful. It doesn't work. And of course, our data completely contradict that. And of course, it works. It's biologic logic because, first of all, the reason why they use mifepristone for medical abortion is because it's a progesterone receptor antagonist. And anytime you have an antagonist and an agonist, the one that has the highest concentration is going to win. And so that's just biologic logic. Animal models that show that abortion reversal works. Well, oh, is that right? So when they were studying mifepristone, they, they actually... In Japan, they did a rat study where they gave uh, mifepristone and that resulted in, in, in the doses they used, they had something like two thirds of the rats would abort. But then if progesterone were given simultaneously, there, were, there was 100% survival. Okay, okay. Yeah, so so and the model, you know, just the simple biology. Right. So then, and then of course our data where we showed uh, 64 to 68% success. So they, um, they attacked us and they, they continued to attack us. And then they were saying that uh, our science was junk science and this and that. And I, my answer was, no, it's not junk science, it's new science. So then one of the leading abortionists, uh, Dr. Mitchell Crennan at UC Davis, he was quoted as saying that uh, he wanted to disprove abortion pill reversal and he wanted to, quote, own it. And so he designed a trial, uh, um, a randomized control trial with a placebo arm at UC Davis. He had women coming uh, to the surgical abortion clinic. They were given the option of joining the study. And if they did, they were given mifepristone. And half the group was given mifepristone only. The other half, after uh, uh, 24 hours, was given progesterone using our protocol, which was very nice because he gave our protocol legitimacy. And in doing their calculation, their power calculations before this uh, trial started, they actually used Mary's uh, figure of 25% survival if nothing is done. And they used our studies uh, 68% if the high dose uh, oral protocol was used. So they really gave our numbers and our studies legitimacy by incorporating them into their study. But of course, it was an unethical study because these babies were, were destined to be aborted either way. So what happened with that study was that it was suspended prematurely because they had some complications and some side effects. And all of the bad complications where a surgical abortion was required, not requested, but required, were in the placebo group and those who did not get progesterone. And so their study was terminated after only 12 patients. They were planning to have 40 patients. And they actually, this terminated study was actually published in the Green Journal, the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which was one of the major journals of um, an OBGYN world, as Mary can attest. And the spin they put on it was that um, this proved that abortion pill reversal is unsafe. Actually, what it really proved was that not doing anything after taking mifepristone is not safe. And their preliminary numbers showed that with the, the, one, the group that got progesterone, they had 80% embryo survival rate compared to 40% in the other group. So even though these numbers are not statistically significant, they're small numbers, these data do actually point in our direction and point to support that abortion pill reversal is number one, safe, and number two, it's effective. Right, so just to be clear, they conducted a clinical trial um, in women who were gonna have an abortion no matter what, mm -hmm. randomizing them, one, to your protocol versus to mifepristone alone plus placebo, Right, and then eventually they would do surgical abortions on all of them. Right, right. right. After two okay. weeks, they would. After two abort. weeks, and then, and what they noticed is that in the first uh, few days, there were complications in the mifepristone plus placebo, 
um, there were some hemorrhages and whatnot. There was one in the mifepristone plus progesterone arm as well, but that was... Well, but I, that, that wasn't really a complication because what happened was this, this woman had, she was quoted as having, quote, brisk bleeding. She kind of panicked, called the, the ambulance. She went to the emergency department. There they evaluated her and they said, you're fine. You've just completed your abortion. That's all. And so... It's just okay. she had a complete abortion. She had a reversal failure. She required right. no emergency department treatment. She was just observed and she was sent home. So that really is not a complication. Okay. That was just a woman who panicked. And, you know, rightfully so, some women panicked, but it was really right. not, nothing, no extra care was required. But then, but then oh, they... Heavily normally, you know, when they, I mean, you can lead heavily in a miscarriage in either the mifepristone alone or the mifepristone plus mesoprostol. The process is a little bloody. So some people get scared right right yeah. uh but they um they stopped i mean it's, it's the obvious pun they, they aborted their clinical trial <laughs> after 12 patients and then managed to to get it published in in the in the green journal which is actually you know remarkable uh, because the the only the, there would be no scientific reason to do that uh except to try to make a point it seems right. to me it shows that they have connections and the journal has an agenda Right. Uh, you were written up also in the uh, in the New York Times. At least th there was some some uh, reference to your work in the New York Times. That was maybe a year ago. A couple well, times. Okay, but uh, but yeah, I saw an article. And over, I'd say over 200 lay publications from the New York Times Magazine, New York Times, the Washington Post, L.A. Times, uh, Vice News. Uh, okay, so the. No publicity is bad publicity, I guess. Um, but uh, um, a claim that is made has to do with uh, the 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 regret, the treatment of these women, and whether they, um, how many of them actually do change their mind. Whether it's a uh, it's really a minuscule portion of women who have regrets, and whether it's um, uh, uh, sort of ethical to intervene in a in a situation like this when they've made a decision, you take advantage maybe of their ambivalence and that sort of thing. So what's your answer to that? Well, our answer is that we never force anybody to, to, try, to attempt to reverse their medical abortions. And we don't go out and seek them. We don't recruit them. We, they come to us, they call the hotline and they say, hey, I want it. I changed my mind. And then they get a very in-depth informed consent discussion, first by a nurse and then by a physician. And at any point along the way, they have the opportunity to change back. And so to say that uh, we're forcing anybody really is disingenuous. And I would say to them, if you truly believe in choice, why don't you believe in a second choice? And why do you limit women to, once they've made their first choice, to stick to it? Would you say the same thing of a woman who went to an abortion clinic and left the abortion clinic before having her abortion that, well, she could never come back because she's made her choice? Well, of course not. A choice can be made a second time and, and why not? And then the data that they, that they uh, quote, quote so-called minuscule, you know, I'd say some of the data they quote actually suggests that up to 10% of women may change their minds. And if you look at more longitudinal data by less biased um, researchers like Priscilla Coleman, you see that up to 50% of women probably have a lot of ambivalence and probably have a lot of second thoughts. And so I think the number is probably much higher than they're willing to admit. And even if it were only 10% of the women, that would still be 30 to 40,000 women a year in the United States because we're, we're, we probably have 300 to 400,000 medical abortions here every year. So 30 to 40,000 women is not an insignificant number. So 
why not give those women a second chance at choice? Right. There, there's also the issue of coercion. There's, it's hard to get numbers on this, but there's a certain number of women who are coerced into abortion by their partners, by their parents, uh, et cetera. And it kind of gives them an opportunity to get out of that decision that might have not been their decision in the first place. Right. Um, on that note, what um, what do you say there's some... Um, so on the pro-life uh, side, people have uh, jumped on the bandwagon and tried to uh, pass laws yeah. to compel uh, abortion clinics to... Uh, make the women aware that there's this uh, uh, reversal. Uh, what's the status on that? And what's your opinion about that? Mary, you want to comment on, on this? Or? Um, well, it, it was interesting. Um, very soon after we wrote the first article that was on seven patients, um, the Arizona legislature uh, passed a bill to uh, require abortion clinics to give this information to women. And uh, we really, we believe in our protocol, but it was a little bit ill-timed because at that point early on, there was not the research to support it. So that, it, it did create um, some problems. Um, if, if somehow this legislation had been introduced at a later time, for example, after this study, you know, with 250 surviving babies and much better data. It, um, it's, it's not very hard to support now. It was more difficult to support back, back then. But still, even then, um, if, you know, if the legislature in Arizona supported the bill, we, we supported the legislator and, legislature and testified um, in favor of the bill, um, because we, we believe in choice, we believed in the physiology, we believe that it makes sense, we believe that women should know about it. Okay, right. but um, it was, it was, the, those early efforts were a little bit tricky because we hadn't done the studies yet. Could there but be now a, we have, but now we have. <laughs> right, but could there be a charge of uh, holding a double standard if on the one hand, you're against being, you know, you're against having crisis pregnancy centers being forced to mm -hmm. give the option of their women to have, you know, to be referred to an abortion clinic, mm -hmm. um, and yet require the, you know, the other sides to, uh, to be forced to disclose the option of medical like reversal. It's um, all of the um, all legislation on informed consent is like that because physicians have different opinions on breast cancer procedures, on all kinds of stuff, you know. So, um, right. and, you know, I think it's tricky. However, this is life and death. So if there's abortion, um, excuse me, if there's legislation where the people of a certain state think that this is information women should have, you know, I, I, would, I, I would support those laws. But it is a little bit tricky because in our state, um, you know, it, it's completely different politics and they want to force crisis pregnancy centers to uh, give referrals that are against their ethics. So um, at any rate, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's a, tricky, uh, a tricky subject. Yeah, and no, I have to agree yeah. with Mary. You enter this area with much trepidation. Yeah. And I think in general, the fewer the laws that dictate what physicians say, the better, because they're always 
unforeseen consequences. However, this was an area where clearly the abortion center workers have had and have been lying to these patients. We we have numerous uh, instances of of when people called our hotline, they told them that they've lied, that they call. First, they call, often they call the abortion center first, and they say, hey, I want to reverse this, and they lie to them. They say, number one, you can't do it. it. There's no proof that you can do it. And number two, your baby's sure to have birth defects. And we've those are t- total lies because we've disproved that. We, we've shown that it's number one, it's a Other safe. Other literature has disproved that too. You know, before we did our study, there was an article from France by Bernard about European and, uh, abortion following several hundred women that just didn't bother to go through. They didn't bother to go through with the second abortion pill, so they were sort of a natural control. And 20% of those babies survived, and they didn't have a higher rate of birth defects. So ours isn't the only information. Uh, you know, well, I think in general, oh. education is always the best way. But when, when these people are lying and they're not presenting the medical evidence, I think the state legislators have no no choice but then to pass laws to protect their their constituents. And I, I think in those cases, you have to do that. Where do you see the needle moving um, among the, you know, family physicians or people who are not necessarily involved in the, um, in the pro-life cause the way you are, um, but now who may have, the opportunity to have a treatment to, um, um, you know, to offer to their, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not involved uh, that much. I mean, I, I'm part of the network. I've, I've been uh, privileged to, uh, to reverse a, a couple of um, uh, pregnancies, but I don't know exactly right now is the abortion business so segregated and specialized that your typical physician is really out of the loop when that, uh, as far as that's concerned. You know, there's been an effort um, in abortion to mainstream abortion. Um, you know, they, they would say it's it's no more difficult than um, pulling a tooth. You should be able to have an abortion anywhere. You should be able to go to your community clinic, just take an abortion pill. They had all these surveys. What do internal medicine doctors think about providing abortions? And then certainly moving nurse practitioners, midwives, all you know, the non-physician health providers into this. Um, I don't think there's been a big uptake on in ab- abortion provision um, among um, non-OBGYN people. And, and now certainly some fa- family practice, uh, family medicine doctors provide abortion. They do women's health services and do that as part um, of, uh, you know, their practice. But... Um, I think in the people providing abortion reversal, I think we find a broader range of physicians and that are just more motivated, motivated by helping the women who want to reverse this decision, which for, you know, which is a bad decision for them. And it's quite amazing being around a woman who's changing her mind about abortion. And so typically for me, um, if I see uh, a woman who wants to reverse abortion, I, you know, I try to see them right away in my office and I have an ultrasound there. And then we look at the pregnancy, we look at the baby, we see a heartbeat. And um, it's sort of before my eyes, you know, in, in 30 minutes uh, or so, she's changing from wanting to abort her baby to becoming a mother and identifying with her baby and wanting to care for her baby. And all of a sudden she gets really, really concerned, you know, is it going to work? Are we, you know, and, and we assure her we'll do everything and try really hard 
and you know support her and follow her up and um it's just quite amazing to see the shift and, and the mindset when she begins to see that, yes, she can carry the pregnancy. Yes, she can be a mother. You know, it's, it's possible. Whereas it that seemed um, so difficult, yeah. you know, just maybe a day before or hours before it's quite amazing. And most people who do this work in abortion pill reversal, a lot of people say it's the most amazing thing they do or the most fun part of medicine or the most rewarding part of medicine, actually. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's really remarkable. And again, I mean, I, I, uh, I received a text message from, uh, it so happened that just a few months, uh, a few weeks ago, I, uh, I uh, was able to reverse her case. And I, she's now about, uh, you know, at the end of her third trimester, she was giving me an update because she was going to come off the progesterone. First of all, if a cardiologist can do this, yes. believe me, anybody can, <laughs> anybody can, you know, a psychiatrist, a pathologist, even a radiologist should be able to do this. Um, Number two, indeed, I mean, it's really a joyful occasion. It's really quite simple. I mean, of course, I yeah. didn't, I mean, I mean, all I had to do was initiate the process and then turn mm -hmm. her over to, uh, you know, an OBGYN who would be willing to uh, um, uh, to take care of her. Mm -hmm. um, but if we, you mentioned the numbers, uh, just, you said 300 medical, 300,000 medical abortions per yeah, because you know, you know, so? in the U.S. there are about nine hundred thousand to a million abortions a year, and, and a safe estimate is that thirty-five to forty-five percent of those are medical abortions. Okay, okay, and uh, you know, and it's growing. It keeps growing in the U.S. Right, it keeps growing. It keeps growing. We're now, of course, over you know, as you said, I mean, not not you said maybe ten percent. Possibly more if they were more aware uh, of, of regrets or change, uh, right? Changes of mind. So we're looking at the possibility of at least forty thousand potential pregnancies. Let's say fifty percent success rate to be conservative, right? Not, no, you know, it might be more. It might be sixty-eight percent, like in your series. But let's say fifty. I mean, it, it, this is a, a significant number of of uh, of lives. Mm -hmm. uh, that are that are really safe because otherwise the destiny it's a hundred percent mortality right the, the, to not intervene is a hundred percent mortality and you know it's amazing to me that we spend so much time so much research on very expensive medications that might expand you know where you we, we do clinical trials in cardiology or in oncology enrolling thousands of patients to show a difference of 2% or 3% yeah. benefits, right? Um, anyways, it's really remarkable. Uh, Anish, do you have any, any uh, what's your reaction? I mean, we're all biased here. The three of us are really, <laughs> um, uh, what are your thoughts here? Just Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm most interested by the, uh, by the politics of it and how the politics seem to uh, affect uh, the medical part of it. So, uh, you know, it seems, it's uh, why, why, why do you, uh, you know, why do you folks think that um, of the vast number of folks that uh, are um, going through abortions? Um, uh, do you have any uh, thoughts as to why such a small fraction uh, are uncertain? Well, about? I actually think a larger percentage are uncertain about it. I think there's a lot of um, indecision and it, it goes along with it, but I think the studies that have looked at it have been biased in how they ask the questions. And so there, there's also a defense mechanism of denial, of course. And I think the way they've asked the questions in those studies has, um, has built, played into that denial. And so that's why the studies don't reveal the, the number that I think do have a lot of conflict going on. Right. Is it, is it our role in these, uh, 
uh, is it our role in these um, difficult uh, places um, where people have very different backgrounds? Um, certainly people may have very different faiths, um, have been raised very differently. Um, how does one separate out, um, you know, uh, our own biases from that conversation? Or, or do you think that's something we should try to do? Or Because um, obviously, uh, um, you know, the, obviously the biases of the physician um, uh, are, are somehow, are, you know, kind of translated into that conversation, correct? So the way... <laughs> I think it's a mistake to say that we can erase our biases, uh, and I don't think we can. I think we have to be as transparent about our biases and always present all the options. And we do that, for example, on the hotline. We, we give them the option and we tell them we think this is a good thing. We tell them why, but it's ultimately their choice. So they know our bias and they should know our bias. But I think on the other side, they don't. They say that they're unbiased, but really when you talk to these women who go to the clinics, they really are, they're really often pushed into the corner of abortion. There was one woman who was given the pill and she was so conflicted that she was squeezing the pill in her hand and she wouldn't swallow it. And the doctor was right in front of her and said, look, you have to swallow that pill. It's, it's going to melt in your hand and it's very expensive. So she felt very pressured to swallow it. And she did. And then later she sought reversal. But the, the difference is that we are transparent about our bias. They are not. Why, uh, why, um, why, why, why is it so, uh, why, why, why does this decision need to be imbued by so much certainty, do you think? Um, uh, I think because we we're all hardwired, and particularly women are hardwired to nurture their young. And pregnancy is a very complex physiological process that involves a lot of psychological effects. And so that hardwiring is that they're going to do whatever it takes to protect their, their children, including their unborn children. So when they go against that hardwiring, it's a huge psychological conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's really important for um, physicians and doctors in training to kind of be exposed to all these different viewpoints, uh, you know, because it, um, it's a little unfortunate that it's that, you know, we don't have a kind of panoply of views to kind of, um, you know, and you, you, you don't think the new, the new England Journal of Medicine and Ish will uh, will put an editorial to uh, to advertise what uh, <laughs> Dr. Delgado and Davenport are doing? Yeah, that's the unfortunate part. It's, it feels like you know um, you almost get the sense that this is this hush hush thing that needs to be kind of kept kept in the, kept in some backroom closet. And uh, I don't quite understand why the uh, yeah I don't quite have a great understanding. Medicine is is uh, pro abortion. It's very What's that? medicine is pro abortion. Why is that? The, main, the the elite levels of mainstream medicine. You can't yeah. succeed at the high levels of OBGYN and be a pro-life person. Yeah. Why, why is that? Medicine. The, um, like what? What? Why? Well, like why? Interesting question. Um, yeah. You know, I I don't quite understand the power politics of that. It didn't used to be like that. There used to be. Uh, well, back in the day, you know, in the 60s and 70s, maybe more gentlemanly tolerance, okay, shall we say, um, of different points of view, um, and and that's slowly been erased. It, it is it is it is incredibly it is somewhat interesting that as uh, more and more women have, have poured into medicine, right? Uh, there are more women now that are graduating as as as, uh, as as medical doctors than there are men that. That, that do you think that has shifted the conversation? It's that 
it's that it's that uh, you know if. Well, yeah. no, no, some of it. Yeah. Some of it is there's been deliberate medical politics. I mean, if someone is a pro-life person, an overtly Catholic mm -hmm. person, that kind of thing, they can be kept out of medical school. They're kept out of OBGYN residencies. Uh, mm -hmm. There's been pre prejudice against them. This has gone on for um, three or four, you know, since the '80s. I mean, yeah. this was this was apparent uh, some time ago. Um, that so you would say you would say that so you would say exclusion of people with a pro-life mm. view they're they're very overt ideas that someone who is pro-life or believes in hippocratic medicine should not be an obgyn because they don't won't want to provide the full range of services now right. there's no concern at all that there's a huge percentage of the population that might really want to have a pro-life doctor or a doctor who you know maybe shares their ethical opinions about unborn life, something like that. So there's been systematic and deliberate exclusion um, for, I mean, quite a long time. And that's partly why you find, um, th that's partly why it's sort of hush-hush, because you might get fired or, or lose a, a job or something like that. You know, you're, if, if you're a pro-life doctor in OBGYN, in some circles, you have to be somewhat quiet about what you believe and for sure if you're a medical student yeah. um, or potentially want to go to medical student or want to be in a residency you know there's kind of different strategies but definitely one of the things you do is you conceal uh, an evangelical christian background um, a catholic background any pro-life activity sometimes i mean not everybody would some people would um put that right out there on their resume but with more strategic thinking and it just depends on, on their goals but i mean in counseling students and what do they do you know to get into medical school they're told to hide it by a lot of people okay. at, at the same time mary the the country is shifting i mean it seems to be that uh yeah. more people are pro-life um, sort of yes mm -hmm. so, right uh but you think it's it's uh the, the interests now are too entrenched in uh, medical academia to uh to, to allow for that to uh, to be reflected in the uh, in the uh, faculty, I, I I can't say. I mean, we keep trying. All right. You well, know, I so would say though, it's, I, I think yeah. medicine is lagging behind society is really what's happening, because you know, just like in Nazi Germany, where you 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 didn't get the death camps until the medical profession bought into it and it, it became medicalized killing. The same thing has happened here in the United States with. Um, both abortion and with uh, euthanasia physician-assisted suicide, is that the medical profession has had to buy into it. The medical profession fully bought into abortion for the most part, as far as the mainstream and the controlling parts of it. And it'll only drift back to the pro-life way after if society goes much more pro-life. I think medicine will follow society. Because what happens in medicine is that you had an adoption of a relativistic and utilitarian ethic instead of a... Um, traditional Aristotelian ethics, where there was uh, a look at, at, at the ethics of it, and there was absolute good and absolute evil. And life was good, preserving life was good, alleviating symptoms was good. But now it's become utilitarian, and where control is good, so controlling your destiny and controlling about your body is much more important, and that then allows one to justify the killing of the unborn or the killing of the elderly who no longer are useful. And so the um, it's that ethic that has allowed good to be promoted as evil and, and and so the good that we're doing is promoted as evil and the evil killing is promoted as a great good 
And that's one of the reasons why I, I feel strongly that we've been attacked so, so vigorously is because if, if there's a notion that women want to reverse their medical abortions, then that supports the notion that, well, maybe abortion isn't the great good that they say it is, because if it was such a great good, why would any woman change her mind? And so that, to me, is why they're attacking us so vigorously. George, you're, um, how big is the network now of uh, physicians who, um, who can respond to these uh, so there hotline are calls? Over 600, probably about 700 physicians now. Okay. And as far as documented reversals, we're up over 1,000 documented reversals. Okay. Are you looking and to- We've had reversals in, in, in uh, more than 13 foreign countries. There's an Australian uh, network that's on its own. There's a, a network that's going to be starting in Ireland and one in Switzerland. And also, there's already a network in Russia. So, are, right. Um, in the U.S., are you? Uh, what do you think is more limiting? Is it the availability of uh, availability of doctors in the network, or is it just the awareness? You know, raising awareness. Among, I think it's uh, more the women. awareness. We have doctors in, in all over the country, and uh, our goal is to have more, of course. But uh, it's more the awareness that's limiting right now. We still are seeing growth in number of phone calls every month, but uh, I think. Um, the awareness still has to grow. And that's one of our main objectives is increasing awareness. Okay. Um, where can people follow you? Do you have, um, do you have a website or? So uh, uh, stenoinstitute.org, S-T-E-N-O institute.org. So that's for the research. Um, that's uh, for the research. Part. And then for the, uh, the network, uh, abortionpillrescue.com. Okay. Very good. Any um, last words, Mary? You're part of a OBGYN, a group of uh, pro-life OBGYN that, uh, you know, maybe yes. people in the audience well, are not I'm, aware of. I was yeah. on the board of the pro-life OBGYNs. I was president of the pro-life OBGYNs um, uh, a, few, a few years ago. And um, so this is a several hundred member group. And as soon as we found out about the existence of a few cases, um, it, um, the pro-life OBGYNs jumped on board and endorsed this. Um, and yeah, so I'm proud, you know, that our organization has supported. What, what's the name of it and the, uh, the URL? P-L-O-G, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. It was okay. founded at the same time as Roe v. Wade. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a, thank you both. A fascinating, not, not just fascinating. I mean, it's, it's a life-saving, uh, um, you know, endeavor. Uh, it's really, we can't thank you enough. And I'm sure a lot of, uh, adults will be thanking you, uh, years from now when they, when they were aware of what uh, was happened to them. So I, I just hope and, and wish that the medical community will, uh, will turn to this, uh, this beauty, this beautiful truth that um, the two of you are uh, imparting. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.